This is the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a podcast for creatives, for those who are beginning to be creative or those who have built a business around their creativity. Here, we allow creatives to tell their story about how they got to where they are today, and we give some tips on how to make your creative business better than it was yesterday. This episode of the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast is brought to you by the Creative Writing Community. I started the creative writing community for writers of all levels. Ultimately, writing is something we do up in our office, all alone with our computers or paper and pen. So what could a writing community do for a writer, you might ask? The answer is a lot. In the creative writing community, we sprint several times a week, which is how I'm getting upwards to 30,000 words a month while traveling and having three kids at home. We also gather together to brainstorm problem areas in our stories or in our marketing, as well as share what we've learned. And we have master classes where experts come in and talk to us about what they know about the publishing and writing industry. And that happens one to sometimes twice a month. We also have the private Slack community where we can share articles and tidbits about our novels and really become friends who are interested in seeing everyone do well in their writing and their publishing career. Writing doesn't have to be a lonely job. If you're looking for a writing community, I invite you to try us out. Head on over to catcaldwell.com and click on creative writing community, or you can head straight on over to patreon.com forward slash creative writing community. And just a heads up, admissions closing in October. We really want to gather together and be a community and be bonded together. And for that, we're just going to have to close the community for a couple months at a time. So if you want a community through the winter to help you get writing and possibly finish that book, or maybe two, head on over and sign up. If you have questions, shoot me a question. I am completely open and available to any questions you might have. We will close in October and we won't open again until April. So I highly encourage you to check us out. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast. This is the week of August 9th, 2021, and we are on podcast episode 93 of the Pencils and Lipstick. And we are in the second week of season three. So last week I introduced what we are going to do a little bit on the season. So if you missed last week, um, you might want to go back and listen to it. This is our first interview show for this season, and I'm really excited to present to you guys Jeff Elkins, aka the Dialogue Doctor. He's really interesting the way that he got to be a Dialogue Doctor, how he got that title. He's a writer. He's had extensive jobs and all these different things that he's going to talk to you about, um, which really feed into him helping writers write better dialogue, which is something that we talk about together about how important it is for the books. We also talk about the emotional connection that writers are trying to build between their story, their characters, and the reader. And I want you to think about the emotional connection that you are trying to build in your creativity. If you're a writer, you're going to you know, really think about the setting and the characters and how this builds up to make it so that the reader wants to keep reading. If you're another creative, you still need that emotional connection. 
right? This is what we are that sets us apart from other animals. Like as humans, we are very emotional creatures. We make friendships off of emotions. We break up off of emotions. (laughs) We are constantly in this tug and pull of emotions, learning to control them, them exploding. (laughs) I'm kind of getting off topic here, but what is it? Like, it is that emotional connection that makes you fall in love with characters and with a story, right? It, It can make you angry. Like you can feel your heart beating, can make you sad. You can cry. It can make you laugh. You like that really pulls you in. And so I want you to think about what are the emotional connections that you are trying to build between you and your customers and your clients. We talk about it a lot in this episode. And I know that this episode is a little bit longer than some of the other episodes, but I hope that you are going to find it really interesting. Jeff is a fun guy to talk to and he has a lot to say. So I hope that you don't think that it's too long, but I'm going to keep my intro a little shorter this week just to make sure that we don't make it too, too long. Now, my shout out this week for the Patreon and the patrons of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast is Emma Desi. She is a friend of mine, and she's also been a longtime supporter of the show. You can find Emma at Emma Desi, that's E-M-M-A-D-H. ESI.com. She's a great author of three books out there. She also hosted an incredible writing summit a few months ago, and she is a writing coach as well. She also has a podcast that I encourage you to check out. She is a great, great coach of especially newer authors. And so her podcast is Turning Readers into Writers. Yes, anybody can become a writer. And that is like her specialty. She has had some great guests on her show. So if you're looking for another podcast, please don't leave me, but add Turning Readers into Writers to your list. Thank you so much, Emma, for being a supporter of this show. If you want to be a supporter of the show, if you want to make sure that the Pencils and Lipstick podcast keeps going, you can head on over to Patreon dot com forward slash pencils lipstick and you can become a patron it doesn't take that much but it definitely lets us know that you like the content lets my editor christy and i know that we should keep going and that you want more episodes it just really helps us out it takes a little bit of work to put all of this together so anything that you feel that the show deserves is excellent. And we are very, very appreciative. And if you become a patron, please leave me your information. What do you do as a creative and where can people find you? And I will give you a shout out on the podcast. So without further ado, let's head into the interview and hear what Jeff Elkins has to say. All right. Hello, Jeff Elkins. As we, Hello. As, as we stop our giggling here, thank you so much for coming on the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. You are my first interview for this season. So yay. Nice. I'm a little sad. I was tempted to wear lipstick, yes. but I'm I'm kind of sad that I didn't. I'm so. sad that you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just wearing my gloss today. So people might be disappointed. Anyway, uh, yes, you are one of a few males on the show <laughs> and none of them nice. have worn lipstick yet. So we'll find somebody someday. I feel like this is a missed opportunity. Yeah, that's the one time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and all your kids could have been like, uh, dad. Uh, dad, no, they wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> hey. They wouldn't have noticed. Like, what's dad doing? He's over there wearing lipstick. Who cares? Yeah. All right. Um, so I had you come on because you are called the dialogue doctor, right? I am called the dialogue doctor. Yes. And you yeah. have an interesting story on how you have become the dialogue doctor because you're also a writer. I'm also a writer. I'm not a real doctor. I just play one on the you internet. You just play one. Yeah. If yeah. You, I just play if one. You have on a heart internet. attack. Jeff Elkins is not your guy. Jeff Elkins is not going to help you. <laughs> he will talk you through it. Yeah. <laughs> and he'll um, help you with your dialogue tags as, as he talks you through it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's right. But we were talking before. So during the summer, I reviewed a book and I really regretted signing up to review it. Because there was no dialogue for 108 pages. <laughs> so that hurts. Dialogue doctor, what's wrong with that? <laughs> it's my fault. So um, yeah. So let's talk like why, what that is doing to your book. Let's talk about that. So what dialogue does is it connects the reader mm -hmm. to the characters in the book in an intimate way. And through that connection. The reader feels like they know your book and they know your story, mm. right? So, you know, books like Twilight, where readers like super connected to those characters, they were connecting to those characters through the dialogue. Harry Potter, right? People talk all the time about what house they are. It's not because the houses are so in intricately designed and fascinating, right? Like in the books, two of them are almost completely forgotten, yeah. right? Like that's not what it is. It's that you, the people who read those books connect with the characters that represent those houses. And they're like, yeah, that when I see that character, that's me. When Snape talks, I feel like Snape. So I feel like I'm from Slytherin, right? Like they're connecting to your book and your characters, however they express mm -hmm. it. It's coming through the dialogue that your characters are giving. The reason I can say that is because that's how we connect to each other as people, hmm. right? Like you can think about every relationship in your life, every relationship you've ever had from when you were an infant to present day, your spouse, your parents, your siblings, though all of those relationships can all be summed up into a series of conversations. Right. Right, Every moment you've had with another person can be boiled down and defined into a series of conversations that you had with them because that's how we build relationships with each other. Interesting. And so we have these people coming to our book who build relationships by being these communicative animals that express emotion, express ideas, express expectations, express anxiety. We express all of that through our voice. Right. Right. And so then they come to your book and they read your characters. And because this is the type of creatures that we are, they are looking at your dialogue in order to connect and understand your book. Not just your characters, but your whole story right. is going to be defined. The emotional feeling of everything you're writing is going to be defined by the dialogue you use. So 108 pages of no dialogue is 108 pages of no story. Yeah of no emotional connection, of nothing compelling that's going to make a reader go, I find myself in this book. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the problem. 
with 108 pages of no yes. dialogue is dialogue is the primary tool of engagement with a reader. And so when you don't use it, you are not engaging your reader. Yes. <laughs> I was not engaged, yeah. I would have to say. <laughs> no. You wouldn't use it as an illustration if you were, right? Right. And the reverse is true, right? This is what's shocking. The reverse is true. The more dialogue you have, the more engaged your reader is. Interesting. Take, for example, and this is the book that I like to hold up. The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Yes. People love that book. They love it, right? It is all dialogue. That book has no plot. There's zero plot to that book. Yes. They wander around Europe. Nothing happens. That book has no character change. All the characters start and end the book in the exact same way. There's no twists. There's no story arc. They are literally hanging out in bars, having interesting conversations with each other. And finally, they go watch a bullfight. That's a whole book. That's so true. That's it. But people love it. Why do they love it? Because the dialogue is fantastic. And because you can find the character you want to find. You want to be in that book. Yes. His characters are unique. His characters are engaging. And the dialogue is fantastic. No plot. No change in any character. Oh, my gosh. You're so right. There isn't. Yeah. The overarching theme is depressing and sad. The overarching theme is about masculine impotence and his inability. Yes. To be the man he wants to be. That's the that's the thing. But you're right. But we, when like I read that book like 25 years ago, and I can still see the characters in my head somehow. Yeah, you can feel it. Somehow I know what they look head. like and feel like. And yeah. And that's because you connected to their voices. Their voices. You and Robert McKee in his book Dialogue says it this way. He says, We think that we have a disadvantage over theater. And over movies, because theater and movies, people can actually see the action and don't have to read it. He's like, but what writers need to understand is that we have a advantage in that in theater and movies, the dialogue is translated for the consumer, mm. right? Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man is translating how they read those words. But for the reader, the reader has to put those words in their own mouth and hear them come out of their own mouth with their imagination, which then gives them ownership of the characters. And it's why we love to read books with great dialogue, because we just absorb in it. We become part of it, right? Like I'm reading Freaky Deaky by Elmore Leonard right now, because it's our dialogue. The Dialogue Doctor podcast is a book club. And right now it's Freaky Deaky. And the character is infuriating, the main character. He's infuriating. but I know and feel he's infuriating because the book is like 95% dialogue. That's it's so just, you're just listening to people talk and I am absorbed in this character and as infuriating as he is, I will read him to the end of the book because I, I love that this, that I'm like, I'm in his emotional journey. I'm in right. it. It doesn't even have to go anywhere. I'm just in it because it's all great dialogue. So then is that why some books are just so easily forgotten too? Like we read it and like, it's a good entertainment, but then we can't really remember what it was about. Yeah, I'm going to get in trouble here, but I'm just going to say it. So as a community, myself included, as a community, we've obsessed so much on genre tropes and plot. Mm. We've forgotten dialogue. And so our books are throwaways. Yeah. They read them. 
they get the plot points they want to get and they move on to the next. Yes. Right. But the reason a book like, and you know, we're always asking like, well, how does a book stick? Right. Like how does it stick in the imagination? And we're like, we come up with all these reasons. We tell ourselves like, oh, it's hitting all the right plot points and it's coming at the right time. And it's got character transformation. No, it sticks because the dialogue's great and people love it. Right. Like, and that's why, like, well, how did this book stick, even though it doesn't hit any of the genre tropes? It's true. Right. Like Twilight is a vampire novel with the worst vampires ever written. How does it stick in this like world of this? Well, the dialogue's great. Yeah. Right. Like Fifty Shades of Grey is a like weird romance novel. And like everybody's like, the writing's terrible. How did it stick? It's mostly dialogue. Right. And we like get tied into it. Right. Like it it absorbs us and we love it because through that dialogue, we're going on an emotional journey. It's so funny so though how authors love to hate those books. And we can't you know, we love to hate it because we can't we figure it out. figure it out, but you have the what well, the simplest yeah. Explanation. It's like why it's unfair. It's unfair that that this book is that's why I hate them. I don't hate Fifty Shades of Grey because it was like, you know, quasi soft porn. That's not why I hate Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't hate Fifty Shades of Grey because it was full of spelling errors. <laughs> that's not why I hate Fifty Shades of Grey. I hate Fifty Shades of Grey because she sold a gazillion times more books than I did and got a movie. Got deal. A movie deal. That's why I hate Fifty Shades of Grey. And she did it without hitting the genre tropes. And she did it without hitting the character tropes that we we are all like obsessing over trying to uncover this. I think you know, she cited her magical... own character tropes because everything yeah. came after hers. Yeah, we're but we're like obsessing over trying to uncover this like hidden magical Easter egg in the back. And it's just it's like if I could just find the right combination of plot points and the best scene descriptions, and that's not what people care about. Like, oh, a book that stays with me is Mark Zuckus's, uh book, Thief. Yes. I love that book. Yeah. It's an amazing book. Can you describe to me the settings? It's not what you think about. You think about the Jewish guy in the basement <laughs> and the weird conversations he's yes. having. And, right? the, and the mom, or like the adopted mom, like yeah. how she speaks is so like, oh my gosh. It's so compelling. And the freaking narrator. Yes. The narrator is death. The narrator's character voice is like one of the, the line that has stood with me from that book is the narrator is talking about being in the basement of the bomb shelter where everybody is down there. And the narrator says the silence punched and kicked. Yes. That's amazing. And it's that, but that's his voice, right? Like the narrator's character voice is like, and it's written in that weird kind of third person, kind of first Sounds person, like but it death, definitely, <laughs> yeah. And it definitely has a voice, yeah. right? Like, because death is this weird, like blue collar guy who like, doesn't actually pay attention to what he's And he's doing. tired. But he this gets little, like tired yeah. by the end of the war. Of- he's like pissed at humanity because they're at war, right? Like it's this great, but it's this fantastic character voice. That's what made that novel work. Yes. Right. Like you, it's the character voices. That's what we remember. Yes. You know, his his scene descriptions are beautiful, but I can't tell you his scene descriptions. I can tell you, like, the scene where the girl is, like, talking about saving the book. Like, that's the moment I remember. Right. right? Like, because it's the tension that builds. Yeah. Time. They each have, yeah. like, differing voices. That's. Yeah. Well, before we get into that, what what made you become so obsessed with dialogue? Oh, man. That's a good question. <laughs> uh 
I don't think anybody's asked me that before. Um, <laughs> people are always like, tell me how you started the dialogue, doctor. <laughs> and that's kind of boring, actually. And sorry, I'm thinking about how to answer it. This is a personal obsession, but we all have like 10 versions of our story. Yeah. And so I feel like whenever anybody asks me to tell a part of my story, I have to decide if I'm the hero or the villain and how much. You can tell you're a writer. A villain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that, it's true, yeah. right? Like I can tell this story in multiple ways. So I, when did I become obsessed with dialogue? I'm actually not obsessed with dialogue. Okay. I'm not. I'm obsessed with people. Good answer. I grew up in a house, my parents, and this, you know, I, I know that I have problematic feelings about my Christian evangelical upbringing. Mm. So if anybody is having problematic feelings about it, I am, I, I'm with you. So you and I are both from the nineties church. I call it the nineties church because it's different from the eighties yeah, it's different from the seventies and sixties. It was its own. It is. <laughs> It's it's like this. It's the uh, the boomers. See, I was a pastor, so I can actually speak the language. <laughs> it's it's the boomers, seeker sensitive church that we put an edge on. <laughs> the Gen X, which I'm at the tail end of Gen X. I'm at the like the last year of Gen X. The Gen X pastors, like myself, put an edge on the boomer church, and uh, it got real dark. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> So, uh, That's a whole other yeah, episode. So, it's a whole other episode. We could talk about, I could talk church strategy and history with you. That's what I did for 15 years. I can talk about that forever. So I grew up in a church where uh, my parents, my dad was a doctor mm-hmm. and my parents were evangelical missionaries to Africa. Oh, wow. uh, we didn't go full time. I didn't grow up in Africa, but you know, dad went like six to seven months out of the year setting up hospital systems in Africa. That's probably an exaggeration, like three months out of the year, setting up hospital systems in Africa and like bringing people home with him from Africa to like live in our house while they got schooling or trained. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in this like big community Mm -hmm. and my parents guiding philosophy, which is I think rare in their kind of like evangelical bent was like, we love people. Like people are everything. So I grew up like, obsessing over people and you know i went to high school my parents moved to new orleans when i was in uh uh, starting my freshman year of high school and my parents had this huge thing about like we live amongst the impoverished even though he was a doctor and had all the money in the world he was like we live amongst the impoverished because that's what this like faith thing means to us. So I remember my ninth grade year, we had been looking at all these private schools in New Orleans because New Orleans schools were like super segregated in the nineties. If you were white, you went to private school. If you were a person of color, you went to the public schools and that's how it was. And so like, he's taking me to all these private schools and he was always like, just angry. Like he's, and I'm a, I'm an eighth grade boy. I don't know what's going on. I'm like, Oh, dad doesn't like this one. Uh, so he set me down in our living room, like three weeks before school. And he said to me, he was like, Hey, our family lives and serves and loves the impoverished. And he's like, so I could send you the best private schools in the city, but you are going to the school down the street. He's like, and it's tough and you're going to be a minority, but this is what we do. And so, you know, I had this very strange minority experience 
where I was one of the, you know, few white kids in a predominantly uh, school, mostly of people of color. And it was beautiful and it was wonderful. And like, I wouldn't trade it, but what it forced me to do was code switch and understand people mm. on a deep level. Like that was probably its biggest gift to me was to like, oh, I have to figure out how to operate in different cultures. Yeah. And if you figure out how to operate in different cultures, you get like a, a deeper appreciation of people. Yeah. And then like, so fast forwarding the story, like I went to college and then to, uh, I went into uh, ministry. I was working as a pastor for 15 years and I worked in radically different environments. I spent like five years working at a predominantly upper, upper middle class university mm-hmm. setting where I'm like sitting with college students all the time and talking to college students about their hopes and dreams and expectations. And uh, because of their position in life and the fact that they're university students, like those hopes and dreams are like very tangible and real. Mm -hmm. So they're like very intense, you know, emotional conversations a lot. And then I moved from there because I was missing home where I grew up. I came to work in the inner city of Baltimore. And I was hanging out with addicts and I was like hanging out with homeless people. And I was, you know, we started at Laura and I, my partner in the dialogue doctor, we actually met starting a youth mentoring program for inner city kids, uh, 17 years That's ago. Cool. That's how she and I met is she was, I was starting a mentoring program. We had all these inner city kids walk into the church I was, I was working with. And it was like, man, these kids don't need a church experience. They don't need like songs and a sermon. Yeah. They need somebody to, like go to their PTA meeting right. with them. Because they're they live in a single mom home and their mom is working right. and can't make it. They need somebody like doing their homework right. with them. Like parents that could be present because they have economic stability would be doing. So we were like, I gotta recruit a bunch of people to do that. And Laura was the first one who was like, I'll do that. I'll take a bunch of kids. That's awesome. And I'll like hang out with them and I'll do so we did that thing. And that code switch forced me to consider people differently yeah. in a new way. Like nothing makes you start thinking about how people talk and how people emote and how expectations and dreams and stuff play into people into people's lives like sitting on your front stoop at 2 a.m sharing a cigar with a homeless guy right like not like that kind of you know moment of like trying to get into conversations and having these very difficult conversations is what all of that is what feeds the dialogue doctor that's where Laura and I come from. And Laura just happened to be at the time that I met her, she was starting a new company with somebody. And the company was, uh, it's, we simulate difficult conversations. That's what Laura and I actually do for. Is that like that crucial conversations book? No, No. because they they have a, a website where they simulate yeah, no, ours are very different. We, the guy that leads our company, Dale, he back in the, you know, 17 years ago, everybody was starting to get into AI. Yeah. AI, AI, AI. He was trying to train FBI interrogators to interrogate suspects. And so, soft skills, it's about seeing body language, it's about reading emotion. And so, he was like, I need a virtual role player. Huh. like a, a computer that can pretend to be a human. So he went artificial emotion. So for 17 years, or I think Laura's actually on like 22 years now, she's been pioneering 
She's the COO of a company that pioneers artificial emotion. Is that possible? It is. It's that's an algorithm freaky. that teaches a computer to feel. <laughs> so that's what we do. Okay. We, we are during our day jobs. I were, I continued to work as a pastor. I left the church in the city. I, you know, my wife and I, we got super disenfranchised. We got really angry at organized religion. We moved to a different place. I became a secretary for a while. I worked in a box factory for a little bit where I literally like just spent time putting boxes together all day. And, and we found, we helped found out, we joined a bunch of parents and built a charter school in the city, which was great. And then I came to work for a church that was like dying and full of greatest generation peeps. They had had this thing that they loved that was dying and they couldn't figure out Mm. why. So I came on a five-year contract to like help them. And again, like just the job, it was a change job where you're like trying to help people through change, but the job is helping people understand themselves, helping people understand all of these emotions they're feeling, helping people process those emotions and having these difficult conversations. You're like a psychologist therapist yeah without the degree yeah, without the pay and i'm a counselor without the training <laughs> yeah so which is a terrible thing never go to a counselor without a degree uh all the listeners so all that to say like i left that job and w- after five years my contract ran out and ended up through some twists and turns I went to another place got fired and then laura called me and was like hey i need a writer and so that's how I became a writer. Oh, okay. So you weren't writing this whole time? No. Okay. No, I grew up dyslexic. I hated English. English was the worst subject ever. And I went to a ghetto high school and it was the best for English because I didn't, I didn't have to do anything. We didn't learn to diagram sentences. We didn't read stuff. Which is complete nonsense. Like Like, who cares about that? I don't, well, my AP English class I remember we read three books in AP Senior English. We read The Once and Future King. We read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And we read Beloved. That was, those were the only three books we read. And I got done with the class. I had an A. So I went to my teacher and I was like, hey, I'm ready to take the AP English test. And she started laughing at me. And I'm like, what? And she's like, you can't take the English test. I was like, why not? And she handed me this packet of like 25 books that you were supposed to read to take the AP English test. And I was like, I feel cheated. Like, I feel like you didn't. <laughs> she was, <laughs> I was like, like, you wouldn't but... have done it anyway. <laughs> yeah, but the, well, that's true. Because I only read two out of the three books oh she assigned. But that was why, that was why, uh, like, so coming out of that, like, I hated it. The only class I failed in college was freshman English. I got an F in freshman English because the first day he told us to write an essay about ourselves, (laughs) like a true, he's like nonfiction, write a nonfiction essay about your life. So I wrote an essay about how a time, a group of friends and I were in a van and, you know, they were all African-American and I was white and we got pulled over and abused by the cops. (laughs) And so I wrote this story. Now it's a weird story. We were coming home from football. It was 2 AM. They, rolled up on us with their guns out right like i didn't know there was a cop near me until i looked to my left from the driver's side window and there was a guy with his gun out pointed at me and so like super traumatic event we found out later i was driving a white van with like 17 guys in it i was doing rounds after football practice after a football game we're dropping all the guys off after a football game and i happened to drive and uh, we found out that that night they had been in a shootout and a cop had been shot with a group of teenagers and a white. Oh my gosh. You're lucky you're alive. 
so, yeah, I'm lucky I went dead, <sighs> right? But that's that was like I wrote that essay, and the, my person I wrote at the top, F, I said real life. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah. So yeah, um, he and I never made up. We never like I failed everything. So and I mean, you know, I didn't know what a comma was. Like I had other problems. At best, I should have gotten like a C minus or a D in that class. But yeah, I didn't deserve enough. All that to say, like I hated English growing up. It was the worst. So I started writing in 2010, 11, sometime in here. So why did you take this job to write? Oh, because I was unemployed. And my wife was nine months pregnant oh, with that, our fifth kid. Okay, that'll kid. do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and by the time she hired me, so I started writing in like 2010. I was blogging, but it was, I considered it a science blog. Okay. We had left organized religion and we're like trying to figure out what does it mean to have faith outside of organized mm-hmm. religion? And that's like, it wasn't just me. There's a group of like seven mm-hmm. of us that were trying to figure it out together. And so I was like, I'm going to write about this experience to share what's going on because I was a science major in college. I was pre-med major in college. So I was like, this is what you do. When you try an experiment, you document it for everybody because it's like add to the body of knowledge. So I was doing that and um, that translated into like a pamphlet. I ended up writing for for that last church I worked for and I wrote the pamphlet and the pamphlet's like 50 pages. It's still on Amazon somewhere. I have no idea where. It's still on Amazon somewhere. It's like 50 pages. And I put it up on Amazon because they wanted to like buy a copy. And I was like, I don't want to go to Kinko's. I can put it up here for free. And then you guys can just go download it and Amazon's paying for it. So <laughs> I threw it on Amazon. And that was my first experience in publishing. That's funny. In writing that pamphlet, I opened it with a short story. Okay. I actually opened it with a conversation. Okay. Between five people. That was a short story. It's like an allegory. And that was the most fun. Writing that, I was like, oh my gosh, that was fun. So I started writing short stories as a stress reliever from work. And I did that for three years and I needed a place to publish them. So I looked at like the publishing world and I tried sending out some submissions to places and I wouldn't even hear back. Yeah. And I was like, this is so rude. Like, <laughs> I didn't even care. I was like, you know, and I'm one of those guys, like I tried back then, especially I was like, I will return an email within an hour. Yeah. Like I, if you call me, I will, if you text me, I will answer. Like communication was so important to me that when I emailed and I didn't hear back for a week. I was like, you people don't have your crap together. Like, I understand now that they were like getting flooded with submissions and they couldn't even handle it. And it was like too much. You're but... like, dude, I'm, I'm dealing with kids, teenagers after school. Yeah. So whatever, you got nothing on me. <laughs> I didn't, well, I didn't know that at the time. I was like, I, you know, I sent you guys a story. At least be like, hey, we got it. Thanks. I, I like, think it's rude. It's a bot. A bot yeah. can tell you that it was received. <laughs> yeah. Like you just set something up. <laughs> And then I would read their websites and agents would have on their websites like, we may not reply to you. But then they'd be like, but don't submit your manuscript anywhere else for six yeah. months. Oh, okay. And so I, as a systems guy who like design, design systems for people to move through and operate, I was like, this is a broken system. Like this is broken and I don't want anything to do with it. So I was like, well, that means I have to start my own literary journal. So I started I started Short Fiction Break. It still exists. Shortfictionbreak.com. It's much better than when I ran it. And um, 
I started like, hey, send me your submissions. I'll put them up. Interesting. I'll read them. I'll send you back edits and I'll put them up. Like new world order, new system. Their system's busted. This system is great. And it was great. I got like a group. There's like 17 of us, 18 of us. And we're just, you know, almost sometimes almost every day we'd run a new short story on that. Nice. On that thing. It was it was awesome. I was writing a short, I was publishing at least a short story a week. We did that for three years. We put out at one point, one of them was like, we should put the best ones into an anthology. It was like, great. So we started putting out a quarterly anthology. We'd like to stick it up. You know, we never really sold anything because none of us were like, there wasn't any big names there. There wasn't anybody drawing anything. I hadn't discovered advertising yet. So none of us were advertising right. anything. We were literally just like throwing these things into the ether, but it was fun. And I learned a ton about editing and publishing. Yeah. And then it, I took a job before I worked for Laura where I was sitting in the interview. They had come to me and they'd been like, hey, we know you're leaving this contract, this five-year contract you're on. And they're like, hey, would you come and like do your thing? Because I had a reputation back then for like taking broken institutions and helping them get fixed. Okay. And so they're like, we're an institution that really wants to do good work. But we, and they had a list. <laughs> they had a list of like 1,500 volunteers. But they had nothing for those volunteers to do. Uh, and they're like, we know the problem. We have the people. We need somebody to come and put the people to work. I was like, yeah, I would work. So I took that job and we started putting people to work. But the stipulation of the job in the interview, which was a massive red flag, but the stipulation of the job was like, you can't publish anything anymore, though, because we're nervous about what you publish. I was writing like dark thriller fantasy not fantasy but like dark supernatural thriller was kind of it's kind of like the genre i live in so they were very uncomfortable with it and they were like we don't want this to represent our it's organization. a christian organization oh yeah yeah and so i was like okay like all right that's fine i'll just keep writing i'll, I'll i was like i'll run the journal i'll give the journal i'll just put, put other people's stuff up i'll just won't publish, publish my own stuff and so I stopped writing for like four months at, because that's all I worked there. Then they fired me. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm writing for four months. And then they asked me to leave. Oh. Uh, and Laura, I was like desperate for a job. Laura called me like two weeks later. I was like, hey, will you come work for us as a writer? I was like, yeah, that sounds like that sounds great. So I went to go simulate difficult conversations with Laura, which I'll like talk about fun. in a second. Oh, it's an amazing job. And uh, best job I've had. I've been there uh, seven years now. It's great. And despite the organization I left, I was like, I'm moving to novels. So I gave the literary magazine to my friend, Joe Bunting. Joe runs the rightpractice.com, which if you're learning to write, is an amazing community to learn from. I learned to write short stories at the rightpractice.com. Yeah, I just discovered them. Yeah, they're great. And uh, Joe's got a great community. It's a fantastic teacher. And so I went to the right, I, I emailed Joe. And I was like, yo, I'm turning this off. Do you want it? <laughs> he was like, yeah, I want it. I was like, great. So he 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 runs it and he's got a full-time editor that works with him named Alice, who's an amazing editor. Uh, she works for the right practice full-time. She runs short fiction break. So um, okay, so short fiction break is the one that you put up and then he, I, he took I over. I started that. it. He took over it in year three, and now it's like a thousand times better than it ever has than it ever was when I was running it. Hey, it was your idea. Joe, <laughs> Joe actually knows what he's doing. So <laughs> that's great. But and I went into writing novels and I published uh I started publishing two novels a year. Wow. 
because that was just kind of the pace I was at while I was working for Laura. Wow. So the job Laura and I do together is great uh, and is really what has led to Dialogue Doctor. Okay. Our job is to sit with experts that are trying to train a conversation that's hard to do. Okay. So suicide prevention. Right. Interrogation. You're a pediatrician and you need to tell a parent their kid is fat. Oof. You're a social worker who wants to use cognitive behavioral therapy to help somebody deal with their alcoholism, hmm. right? Like really difficult, intense conversations. That's what we build these computer programs that allow you to practice that conversation over and over and over and over again, oh, cool. like you're talking to a real person. So oh, cool. the product we build looks like a Zoom call. It's got a live actor. The actor is a computer program, but it looks like a live person. And you talk to it and it responds and it has no an way. emotional model. So Laura uh, had been doing that already for like 15 years. And then I jumped in uh, as, the, as one of the writers there. And so we spend in that world a lot of time thinking about every word somebody says, what that word means, how they construct their sentences, how they think about what they're saying, what expectations and hopes are being conveyed through this communication. Like we just, we obsess, we've been obsessing over it forever. And I was writing these novels and I looked at Laura and I was like, Hey, I, well, I was like, would you beta read this? And she was like, yeah, cause we, she was my boss, but she was also my friend. We knew each other from like, you know, inner city kid stuff. So she took it. I printed it off for her because I didn't know. Like, you know, it was just like, we don't know what we're doing. So I like went to Kinko's and I printed her a copy. Of the oh, book. you're so nice. <laughs> yeah. She took it. She always edits with a green pen. That's a fun fact about Laura. She took the book with this. You can ask. I know she's coming on the podcast later. So you yes. can ask her about her green pens. Why? She'll tell you too. She's obsessed with green. <laughs> but she, um, she edited it with a green pen and just... Cut the living crap. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. I love feedback. It was amazing. And she would like circle aspects of the conversation and mm-hmm. be like, what are they feeling right here? Yeah. Like, what are you, what emotion are you trying to communicate? Yeah. And so she has been my editor since then. Awesome. So in, in the time I've worked for Submersion, I've written 11 books wow. and published a short story two short story things too, like two short story anthologies of just my own work too. Mm-hmm. And she's edited all of them. And, you know, I was, I came to a point while well, I was talking to Jay Thorne, I had this big problem where like, I was very terrified of the author community, mm-hmm. which I know sounds weird. Cause like I'm on every podcast in the world now, but I was very <laughs> terrified. I'm like, Oh, I'm speaking at five conferences. I did, was very terrified of the author community. And I, I had my like friends, I had Joe, at the right practice. And I had these like people that I had also worked with at short fiction break, but I didn't really want to interact with anybody else because I was like, they're going to recognize that I'm a fraud, that I'm dyslexic, that I failed freshman English, that my first three novels are written in spite and very angry. And that like, somebody's going to pull me aside and be like, you shouldn't be writing. And so I just kept telling myself that. So I would avoid authors at all costs, especially authors that I thought were real authors. And I absolutely would not talk to editors. Laura was like a safe editor because she's my bud and she's really good. So that was like, (laughs) that was safe. And I finally bit the bullet. I'd listened to a lot of podcasts and 
everybody said, like, you got to go to author conferences. You got to meet people on network. Mm-hmm. You got to build your community because it's the community around you that helps you publish. And I right. was like, oh, fine. So, because my books weren't selling. And I also avoided advertising. I hated advertising because I have real self-doubt issues. Like I have real self-confidence like issues. Like a true author. <laughs> yeah, like a true author. At the time, I didn't know. I thought all these other authors were like super confident. Also- I was like, look at them putting their work into the world. So I didn't want to advertise anything because I'd finish a novel. Laura would edit it. I would put her edits in and then I would publish it. And I never wanted to think about it again. Yeah, I, was I like, think That's we garbage. all have that. It's like, I'm going to just put it behind me and pretend it never happened and move yeah, on to Yeah, I'm going to put it up. But for some reason, I have this need to like put it in the world too. Yes. Like, I don't know what that was about. We're so contradictory. But, and then we, we check our sales page every once in a while. But if our spouse asks us how many we sell, we get really angry and we say, yeah. who cares? I'm like, why would you that's ask why me I that? wrote it. Yeah, I'm like, you don't even read it. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so anyway, I, I, uh, I got... I put it up on that. Uh, I would put those novels up and I wouldn't advertise. And finally I was like, I have to start advertising and I have to start building a community again. Like I I just need to do this. So I signed up for the career author summit Mm -hmm. in September of 2019. And I was very excited about going in the fall of 2020. (laughs) And then COVID hit. But thankfully for me, Jay Thorne, who's running it, felt really bad and was like, hey, we're doing the conference digitally, but if you want time with me, just shoot me an email and I'll spend an hour helping you think through things. Nice. And I was like, okay. So I was like, yeah, I'm in this to like get to know authors. So let's do that. So I emailed him and uh, he spent an hour with me and he was like, you know, what's going on with your fiction? And I was like, well, it's good, but I don't have... I have, I have about 2000 readers on an email list that are like diehard followers, but like, you know, selling two books a year, that's not really going anywhere. So like, and I really struggle to get more. And so he was like, it feels, he was like, it feels to me like you need to engage with authors and you need to start like building a community and you need to get out of Jeff alone on an Island. And he's like, what do you have to do that you can help with? And I told him the story. I just told you, this is who I am. And he was like, oh my gosh, can you coach people in dialogue? I was like, I guess. And so he gave me a book. He was like, I'm writing a book, edit this book. And I edited the book and he was like, and we would, he would write like five chapters and I would give him edits and then we'd meet for an hour and talk about them. And he was like, you need to be doing this full time. Nice. (laughs) So that's how the dialogue doctor started. And I immediately called Laura the week of, and I was like, if I'm doing it, you're doing it. So you're and a baby she, company. You're a baby doctor. Well, we're a year yeah. old. One Actually, year old. last week was our, this, this podcast that we just published this week that you and I are recording this was our 52nd podcast. It was our awesome. one year podcast. Yeah. Very cool. So yeah. So Laura and I, um, she resisted for about two months. She didn't really, but she's like, don't put my name on anything. It's like, you're on the podcast. I don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> like, fine. Whatever. So uh, there's, there's a woman that I talked to, but I cannot tell her name. <laughs> she's yeah. just a ghost. <laughs> she's like, I don't, she's like, nobody wants to hear from me. I was like, you're insane. So she has the yeah. So advice. we started. Yeah. So we started a week a year ago. I started editing tons of as many authors as I could spend time editing. I, I cool. wanted to so that one because this was about expanding a community, and two because I just needed to learn. Yeah. So and needed to like hone what we were doing because we can talk about dialogue when it comes when we started if you wanted to know how to build a non-linear simulation 
like we're experts. <laughs> but when it came to like applying that knowledge that we know of like what it means to mimic voices and what mm-hmm. it means to like understand how people speak, at first we didn't really know what we were doing. Isn't that funny how it took you a minute to like, even though it almost feels like the same thing. But it's not. It's yeah. radically different. And yet your background is so in tune with this because you've talked to people all throughout your life of different accents, cultures, backgrounds, yep. ideas, it, it, socioeconomic statuses, you know, different parts of the, not just the world, but the country, like just everywhere. Yeah. So for me, characterization came very naturally. And so we started uh, a year ago, I made a commitment. I was like, I'm going to try to do at least two clients a week whether they're free or not. And when I run out of paid clients, I start like giving sessions away. So I've done that. I've done two clients a week. So I've done, I've worked with about 110 authors now and it's been great. Uh, And I've learned a massive amount editing 110 people plus people's work. So, and it's more than that because some weeks I'll work with like five people. So like it's, I've worked with a lot of people. It's been wonderful. I've learned that I love authors. (laughs) This is like, these are my people. So that's really great. That is good. <laughs> and I love helping people with their work. Yeah. It's just, it's just nice. Yeah. Cause it's, it's just- like so many authors have great ideas. I spent some time this summer editing some short stories and I don't know how you felt about this. I'm just starting. And it's really hard to sometimes be like your dialogue is really not good. <laughs> I don't, a nicer way to say that. Hey, yeah. how about. Well, How about we? Yeah, no. Your so characters I, sound the same. I don't know who's talking. Yeah, something I learned from after I think it was about I remember the client I was working with mm. when I got it. Uh, when it just clicked for me, was I was really struggling to understand what they were after in mm. the piece they sent me, and so I just asked them. I was like, "Let's forget what's on the page. What do you want this to be?" And they told me this like amazing emotional journey that they wanted to take the reader on. And I was like, okay, let's, let's do that. Like, let's, now that I know what you're after, let's take what you have and talk about how we can make it to that. So that's how I start all editing sessions now is I ask like, okay, what do you tell me the story? Yeah. Tell me about this character. Who are they to you? What do they feel like? What do they sound like? Yes. And then after you tell me that, I can now shape my notes to help get your piece to where you want it to be. Yeah. And I love coaching. Like I coach all my kids' teams and it's just fun to like work with kids and help them like build fundamentals. Like I was an athlete in high school and I loved the like, you know, sitting at the free throw line and shooting a hundred free throws or like sitting at the three point line and just practicing the like jab step before you drive, like in basketball, like, or I played baseball and I loved the like mechanics of like just working how you pop your hip right before you swing a bat, like that kind of like detailed mechanics were something that I, my brain just clicked around Mm. and it's that way for authors too. It's like, okay, I can help you. Like you want to create a scene where the reader falls in love with this character. Right. Let's, let's talk about the mechanics of how that happens. Yeah. Right. We need a moment of vulnerability. We need to build the anxiety before that moment of vulnerability is released. 
so that when the vulnerability comes, the reader is all in. Yeah. And then we need a moment of release where there's a recognition of the vulnerability from another character. Interesting. So that the reader can partner with the other character and be like, yeah, we both see what just happened to Sarah. Right. Like, so there's mechanics there. There's like right. mechanics of that emotional flow you want to get. And that's that's what we do at the Dialogue Doctor. Like we talk about editing your dialogue, but what we're actually doing is helping you create the emotional journey and the characters you want your reader to connect with. The tool to do that with is dialogue. That's so true, though. But that's what we do. And yeah. the biggest, well, I don't know if it's the biggest, but one of the mistakes I see with, I wouldn't even say newer authors, but maybe authors who haven't sought out mentorship or feedback is their characters say everything people don't say everything you know like yeah. their characters say things that like in a perfect world and then they sound like robots because we don't talk like that we yeah. hide things and we skirt around things and i think it was you who said on your podcast once like if you have a string of questions if somebody says a string of questions the next person who speaks is only going to answer the last question. They're going to ignore yeah. all the other questions. You're going to ignore everything else because like, that's how our brains work. Oh my gosh, that's so true. And yeah. yet authors will so many times be like, and let me answer each question one by one. Each question one by one. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that's not yeah. how we act. And a lot of times I tell authors like, okay, so let's back up. Before you try to mimic realism, let's mimic a real voice. Because if you can get the character's voice in your head, and you can like learn how the character sounds like a, a, a dialogue doctor stuff. I say, like, put it in their mouth, mm. put it in their mouth, like get the emotive and the transformational and the expectations and the hopes and all of that stuff that happens inside a human. And that's what we want to put in their mouth. So if you can understand what your character sounds like which Laura real brilliantly broke down character voice. This was a breakthrough we had at Dialogue Doctor where we now say character voice is four things. It's the words you use. So it's big words or small words. Mm. Lots of words or just a few words. Do you use a lot of question marks? Do you use exclamation points? Do you use a lot of commas? Do you use slang? Right, like just mm -hmm. the words your character uses. Uh, and then it's their body language mm. because that's part of dialogue, right? Like how do they hold themselves? Where do they put their hands? Do they fidget with something or are they stoic, mm. right? Do they run their hands through their hair? When the girl is talking to a guy she's attracted to, does she touch her mouth, right? Like what's the body language? So words they use, what's their body language? What's their cadence, Long sentences or short sentences, right. right? Lots of sentences or few sentences, right? How does your character talk? And then what is their pacing? Interesting. Meaning how do they talk in comparison to everybody else? Yes. Do they speak first or do they wait for others to speak? Do they interrupt or would they never interrupt? Interesting. Have a dynamic inner monologue but not a lot going on outside? Or do they say everything they feel, right? Like, and if you can define those four things for your character, you can own that character voice. Interesting. Not just can you like write it, but you can edit it and you'll know when it's wrong. 
right? So like I was working with an author yesterday and we worked through one of her characters and we built that character voice chart and we did it in like 20 minutes. Nice. I was like, and the way I do it with somebody is I'm like, okay, imagine you're at a party with your character. Where are they standing? Are they with a group of people or are they off by themselves? Right? Like, cause already we're talking about pacing, right? Like, are they talking a lot? Are they just listening? Are they like avoiding people? Like, where are they? She's like, oh, they're with a group of people. They're like the center of attention. I'm like, okay, great. So lots of talking. I go, and they're probably leading the conversation, right? She's like, yeah. I'm like, so I put in the pacing box, speaks first. Right. Right. Like she needs to start every conversation. If a group of people are in her room, she's the first voice the reader hears. Right. And that's going to have an impact on the reader's understanding and connection with that character. Right. Like the reader doesn't know, oh, she speaks first every time. But the reader who is lives in a world where they walk into rooms and intuitively understand people by how they operate in juxtaposition to the other people around them get intuitively, man, she's, she talks a lot. Yeah. Right. Because she starts, she's bold. She's aggressive because she starts every conversation first. Right. Like, so, and then I was like, when she's talking, like, what does it sound like? Like lots of laughter. Laughter goes under body language. Great. Lots of what's she doing with her hands when she laughs? She throws them up in the air. Okay. Talks with her hands, right? Emotes with her hands, right? So like, and I told the other, I was like, if you're going to write an intense scene where she's sad, tell me that her hands are held tight to her chest. Yeah. If she's happy, her hands are wide, right? Like, because she's emoting with her hands. So tell me she's emoting with her hands because I know people in real life who emote with their hands. So if you tell me that she emotes with her hands, not the phrase she emotes with her hands, but (laughs) because I know somebody's going to write in there. She emotes with her hands. She said she emoted with her hands. Yeah. Yeah, Bad, bad writer. Yeah. No. So like, if you tell me what she's doing with her hands, I'm going to visualize somebody who speaks with their hands. Yeah. And because I'm visualizing somebody who speaks with their hands, because I know what those people are like, I then start to get a mental image of who of this who character is. is. That's interesting. So, That's and brilliant. then, you know, does she, she talks a lot is, are they short sentences or long sentences? And it's like, oh, I don't know. Like, it's always like, I don't know. Okay. Well think about it. Right. Like tell me something she would say. And I would say, okay, well she'd say, I'd say, you come up to her and you say, how are you doing? And, respond as her and authors will just like rattle off this like and i'm like okay what did you just do you wrote like 53 word sentences <laughs> right like or sometimes they'll just like talk through like all commas i'm like look you talked like you've got so you know for this character you want run-on sentences that just go and go and go so no one can interrupt them <laughs> yeah so nobody can interrupt them right like but and it, what we're doing is we're like conveying the character's personality through these characteristics right. of how they talk Right. And so, yeah, that's what we, that's mostly what we do at the Dialogue Doctors. We help you understand your own character's voice. Right. And then the second part of what we do is help you figure out how to strategically use it in the conversation to communicate the emotional flow to the reader you want to communicate. Right. Right. Like, and I like, I actually stole this from uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut awesome. has, <laughs> yeah, he has a fantastic lecture that he he wrote a dissertation on he was an anthropology trying to get a phd in anthropology which is the weirdest thing to me and he wrote this dissertation which i don't have i have the video of him talking about it but he wrote a dissertation on the narrative structure of cultures oh wow and how some cultures like different narrative structures you can find it on youtube right just 
Kurt Vonnegut lecture and it comes right up and he draws a, he draws a graph like a, you know, a uh, vertical and horizontal axis. And what he says is, if you listen to him, he says positive emotion at the top, negative emotion at the bottom, start of the story on the left, finish the story on the right, right? Like, so you're going to chart this thing. And he says, he starts drawing out stories. He's like, Cinderella, everything's terrible. Everything's great. And he's like, we love this story. But what he's talking about is the emotional flow of the story, like the emotional journey right. the reader's on. He's like, some stories are man in a hole. Everything starts great. Everything sucks. Everything gets great again. Right. right? And he's speaking on like, hey, different readers of different cultures. His theory was different readers of different cultures embrace different emotional flows. Yes. Right. Like For the me, French would be everything sucks and it sucks and then they commit suicide. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> everything's here and then down, right? He talks about it. It's when he does a lecture, he talks about it as like a tragedy. He's like, things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. And it's terrible. Can we go like, negative? <laughs> yeah. It's down. So, but I don't think like, I don't, I'm not necessarily concerned about what cultures love, what mm -hmm. emotional flows. I don't care about documenting that for me as an author. It's like, okay, what emotional, what emotional response do I want my reader to have in this book? Right. And then how do I, what, pattern of events do I take my character through to get them to give them that emotional feeling right oh that's right? amazing yeah so Ernest Hemingway going back to the sun also rises since we talked about it earlier was going for malaise yeah. his characters are drunk all the time yes. they're purposeless like him <laughs> yeah like him they're purposeless Right, like they've lost faith in country. They're all war vets, but they don't know what the war was that they were fighting. They don't know the point of it, and they're just drinking themselves to death in Paris. And that's what he wanted to convey. He wanted you to feel that. Right. So he has a series of conversations where nothing happens. Yeah. And you just feel, and then they get to the bullfight where there's blood, and you get a spike. Right, and all of a sudden, things are exciting, and then the lead character, Jack, and the woman whose name I can't remember, but there's only one woman in the book. So, which is, we won't even talk about how problematic that is. But Jack, <laughs> you know, gets a moment to be with her and loses it. Yeah. And we're back down here. And that's what he wanted you to feel. He wanted you to feel the rush of excitement around battle. But then when the battle's gone, we're back to impotence. And it's that like, that, but he had that emotional flow that he was looking for. And when you read it, you feel it. That's and that's true. what we're looking for. That's right? Amazing. Like that's what readers are coming for. That's why we write genre tropes because those genre tropes communicate an emotional flow. What that reader is showing up for is the emotional flow. That's so and true. a genre trope is a pattern of scenes that can guarantee a specific emotional flow. When your romance reader shows up, they don't care on what page somebody gets kissed on for the first time. They're not counting the pages. Yeah. But they know when the emotional flow is off. That's true. Because they're showing up for the emotional flow. And we use these tools without fully embracing what the tools do. That's so true. And when we use the tools without fully embracing what the tools do, we become owned by the tools. And all of a sudden, the tools run us. As opposed to us running the tools. Oh, you're getting deep now. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to, if you want to screw with genre tropes, understand the emotional flow that those genre tropes are creating. 
Yeah. And now you can play with it because now you mastered the tools and you get the emotional experience you're taking your yeah. reader through. Some others are just supernatural in this, right? Like Chuck Palahniuk is fantastic. Do you think they're at natural at it or you that they just, they understood it somehow? Because I think they have inherent understanding of the tools. They're Maybe. Using. They know, they get that plot points create an emotional experience for a reader so they can screw with that emotional experience, right? Like why do James Patterson's novels all feel the same? It's not because he studied, you know, genre tropes and memorized no, them. No, he's, he he's created them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's because he knew if I do this with Alex Cross, yeah, the reader's going to feel it. True. And I want the reader to feel it. So there, there's a lot of people, I guess, who there's some people who just like are the genius writers, maybe like Patterson, who created the tropes. And the rest of us need to understand how to convey the story in our head to the reader. And I and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. it our craft is something that you have to learn yeah. and get better at every time. And it's and understanding your characters and their voices is so important. Yeah. Let's think about the line of a painter and like how a painter becomes a painter. Let's talk about how Michelangelo becomes the guy that designs the Sistine Chapel. He spends years copying other people's work. Right. That's all he does. He just copies other people's work. He spends years doing it. Then he goes from copying other people's work to painting in other people's styles. Because they used to come up in these Italian Renaissance art studios where like, you know, Dante is that or, you know, whatever is I have Donatello is the uh, lead artist and he's got like 50 guys making Donatello art. Yeah. <laughs> and he comes in and he's like, this is what I want it to be. And he does the rough sketch and then they all go and paint in the Donatello style. And he looks at him and he's like, you screwed that up, paint that differently. And they're like, Oh, paint it differently in the Donatello style. Right. Like, and so they learn the tropes of their style. And then at some point they start to understand. Hmm. Like, oh, when I do this with the brush, it looks this way. But when I do this with the brush, it looks this way. Yeah. So for us, you know, some of us have to write a lot to understand what these movements in our book do. Right. Right. Like what this plot point does. When these characters talk to each other in this way, what's the impact of that on the readers? Some of us have to read a ton. Right. Right. We got to read 50,000 romance novels until it's ingrained in us. Like this is the move, the emotional movement that I'm looking for. Right. And you might not know what it is. You might not be able to say what it is, but you know it at that yeah. point intuitively. But someone like Toni Morrison. Oh, who, she's just a genius. <laughs> well, but that's that's like selling her short. Right. Like to say she's just a genius sells her short. What her genius is, is in a scene. I can use dialogue, right? Like beloved is like 85% dialogue Yeah. in a scene. I can use dialogue to scare the crap out of you, or I can use dialogue to cause you intense pain. pain. Yeah. Or I can use dialogue to make you fall in love, or I can use dialogue to make you laugh. But I know 
what to do with that dialogue and how to connect you to those characters, the turns of phrase, the bends of the plot to take you on an emotional ride. So that by the end of the beloved, not only are you, are you terrified about the ghost story, not only are you horrified about the family's history and what happened, but you hate slavery so much. You can never think about it again. Yep. Yep. Right. Like, and that's what she did with that book. And you know what? There was no history class that made me hate slavery more than her. Than beloved. No, <laughs> it was, no. Like, it you was read just it. like, yeah, heart wrenching. And when you find out why the who the ghost is and why the ghost exists, yeah, you weep and are horrified. And the reason you weep and are horrified is because you have one hundred percent connected to Sethi. Yeah, and you've gone on Sethi's emotional journey. And now that you've gone on Sethi's emotional journey, the payoff is there. So. To take it back to what we were talking about with like owning the tools versus the tools owning us. When we say Toni Morrison is a genius, what we're saying is Toni Morrison has a deep understanding of her tools. Toni Morrison uses those tools like a master. Yes. To take us on an emotional journey that we don't even know we're going on until the end of it. Right. But it's about understanding your tools and using them in a way to create an experience for the reader. So it's that... Yeah, for a while, you might have to be dominated by genre tropes and just write to them. Right. But as you're writing to them, make sure you're asking yourself, what is this trope doing emotionally? Okay. What is happening to the reader emotionally when, if I'm writing romance, I write a scene, the obligatory scene where there's a miscommunication and the love interests decide never again. Right. Right. What's happening to the reader emotionally at that point? Right. Where are they in their emotional journey? And once you know that, you can start using that genre trip wherever you want. That's interesting. Right? Plot that emotional flow like Vonnegut was talking about. You can lay that emotional line out so that you can be like, oh, this is the emotional experience I want to take them on. And most romance novels take them on emotional experience A, but I'm going to manipulate that emotional experience and make an emotional experience B because I feel like I can innovate on it. That's interesting. And that's where we start to become artists, where it's like, oh, now I'm going to innovate on that emotional experience. And I know the tropes to use to do it because I know what readers feel with those tropes. That's where we want to head as writers. Right. So at the Dialogue Doctor, you have a podcast, um, the Dialogue Doctor, where you talk a lot about this, but then you have a community. And is that what you try to teach the community? Is that what you do in your in your community? Yeah, the community is about practice. So okay. we have a podcast. And once a week, Laura and I get on the podcast and we talk about stuff like this and we lay stuff like this out. And mm-hmm. The podcast is kind of varied between me working with authors okay. and like I'll pull an author's work up and I will, we will talk through the edits that I've done to those authors because I, I'm a firm believer as somebody who was a mediocre athlete in high school. I'm a firm believer that like practicing is really important right? and not just practicing, but practicing with intention. Yeah. So when I'm working through a piece with an editor, with a sorry, with another writer, and I'm editing their piece, my hope is that people are listening, going like, okay, I'm going to try that thing. Or I'm going to edit my work and see how that feels. So like when I talk to a, a writer, I'm like, okay, you've got a summary here. And when you write this summary, you're robbing the reader of this emotional moment. I don't want a summary. I want you to put it in their mouths. Let's brainstorm for a second how you can take this summary you wrote where you're like, Jack and Jill talked extensively (laughs) about how much they loved each other, 
right? Like, let's take that summary and let's actually hear Jack and Jill talk about it so we can connect to Jack and Jill. Yeah. Right? Like, my hope in doing that on the podcast is that people are going, okay, I get what's happening and I want to uh, try that in my own work. Yeah. So that's one thing we do. Then uh, we also have a Patreon that's for people that are a little bit deeper. I do my best to keep it super cheap because I was a poor, starving writer and I understand what it means to not have enough money to that. So you can get into that group for a dollar, a dollar a month. You can get in there $3 a month. You get a bonus episode every week. So the Patreon, uh, you get the bonus episode, which is me going deeper Mm. on something and taking something that was talked about and just like trying to build it out more like, today's uh the bonus episode for this week comes out tomorrow and on the podcast laura and i talked about like what we've learned this year Mm. and so in the bonus episode i'm going to be talking about like what i'm experimenting with when it comes to emotional flow and how i'm trying to build a tool to help others do that and right Mm. like i'm just going to give everybody like hey here's a behind the scenes on what i'm working on so that's the bonus episode there's also a newsletter that comes out on tuesday Mm -hmm. the newsletter isn't advertising necessarily it is uh intended to be practical Mm. so like if we talk about well two weeks ago we looked at the ray bradbury short story all summers in a day and which is an amazing short story and we looked at that short story and we talked about how he's using a chorus like a greek chorus to talk to his character so then the newsletter was like hey here's 10 things you can do or i think i had five here's five ways that you can write a greek chorus into your work and like how you use that let's look at what bradbury's doing with that chorus and like how you would write that chorus Mm -hmm. so we have the podcast the newsletter the patreon and then if you subscribe to the patreon you get membership into the slack group okay the slack group is about practice so every tuesday i put up a writing prompt And then everybody writes that prompt. And then every Thursday, Laura reads everybody's writing. And then she puts up an editing prompt. And she's like, hey, here's a theme in everybody's writing. Go and work on this thing. Wow. Go and do this with dialogue. And then everybody reposts. And we read it and we comment on it. So the Slack is a practice group. We also do, if you're in the Slack once a month, we do a Zoom call where we take a short story or we take a question and we just like talk about it as a group. Cool. So that's where the Ray Bradbury story came from. We were, that was our Slack conversation nice. for July. And then you guys have started to do summits. Yeah. So, well, we just do one because part of the problem with all of this is like, you know, like you're seeing right now, if I really want to communicate to you how to build a character voice, I need like four hours with you. Right. <laughs> because you can get it piecemeal. Right. Like what we do in our, in our, we, we're going to do these twice a year. We did one in May and it was a big hit. So we decided, okay, we'll bring it back in August and we're going to start doing them every May and August. Okay. But what we do with the summit is we say like, okay, yes, you could listen to every episode every week. And in those episodes, we're going, you're going to get all of this. You're just going to get it in like puzzle pieces that you have to put together. Right. And life will get in between. Yeah, because who's going to listen to a five-hour podcast, right? Like so, uh, Joe Rogan fans. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah, never mind. Uh, so what we do at the summit is we do four and a half hours of teaching. And we oh, take wow. you through, this is what a character voice is. And like we start with what we call the dialogue daisy, which talks through like, 
what a character voice is. We define for you what it means to modulate a voice. Okay. And then we take you through, here's how you build a voice. And here's like the ways, the components of building a voice. And when you're putting those components in, here's what you're looking for. Here's what you're thinking about. And then after that, we talk about like, okay, so you've got one character voice. Now let's build a cast. Interesting. What are you looking for to complement and contrast characters in a cast? What makes an engaging cast? What makes a cast? How do you set your cast up for the emotional journey you want to take your reader on? Interesting. Right? If you're going on a journey of betrayal, how are we going to build some friends around your main character that are really going to hurt when they turn on them? Yeah. That's right? good. If you're going to put your main character through hell, right? If you're J.R.R. Tolkien and you're going to make poor Frodo walk all the way through Mordor with no shoes on, how are we going to make the reader feel that? You got to have a Sam. Right. You got to have a Samwise Ganji walking next to Frodo the whole way. And what is it about their voices that make that journey through hell super compelling and something you're willing to read three books that or three giants. very long books. <laughs> yeah. So when is the summit? Summit's August 28th. August so that's 28th. the summit. And then so it's one day. It's one day. Okay. It's four and a half hours on one day. And then and we do it noon to four because we find that those times kind of correspond with all the different time zones. Cool. And then we do if you want, you can sign up for kind of a discounted bonus session after the conference. Okay. Where Laura and I will spend an hour and a half with you working through your cast. Wow. Okay. So at the summit, we teach you like, here's how you build it. And then we give you a tool that I call the character wheel chart, where you actually put all your characters on it. And it's a nice way to like compare and contrast the characters. Okay. Sure. And then what we do in the 90 minute session is Laura and I both come on and I talk you through how your characters are going to feed your plot and what that emotional journey these characters are setting up for. We try to spot some holes. We're like, okay, you need a character that does this or you need a character that does this. Like, And uh, then Laura talks through the individual voices and helps gives you like, okay, when you're editing this voice, look for this thing. This is going to be the point where you struggle with this voice like look for this thing when you're writing this voice so that's the that's the second half of the summit where can people sign up for the summit dialoguedoctor.com everything is there you can get the newsletter you can get on the patreon you can get in the slack group you can sign up for the summit it's all there yeah i have to say i'm part of the slack group and it's a great group of people um yeah they're fun yeah and you can read some fun things in it especially if you're a writer, I've really started to think of this this last year. Really being able to critically read other people's work is important to learning your own work. Like you will learn so much by being able to critique other people's work. And so, Oh, 100%. I highly recommend Not just critiquing, but like watching other people learn. Yeah. Like we're communal animals. Like we do things together. Yeah. And so, but the problem with writing is that you do it by yourself with a laptop. So getting in a group like that where you can watch other people learn and like, you know, Faye White is our longest standing member. She's been in there. I think Faye jumped in before we actually started this lecture. <laughs> she's like, I'm um, here. Yay. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. But I've been reading Faye's writing for nine months. Wow. And like I'm learning about my own writing, watching her grow. Yeah. And it's that kind of like, that's what that community does right. is it allows you to grow by engaging with other writers. 
And and for anyone who feels or felt like Jeff felt in the beginning, like he was too scared to go meet other authors, I think your Slack group is a great place to like oh, break that down. Because it is difficult. I run writing sprints and I like breaking out into groups and having people share it because I want to break down that wall of like, yeah. me feel so scared <laughs> about sharing yeah. our work. And it's, I mean, until you share it, you know, the more you do something, the less scary it is. And so <laughs> it's like, this is one of those groups. Your group is one of those groups where like, everyone is nice. Everyone is there to like build each other up. And it's a yeah. great place to just start <gasps> Sharing the work. <laughs> yeah. And there's no, com- there's no competitive nature. No, to like, no. And they're, and yeah. they have great feedback and I highly, highly recommend it, especially if yeah. somebody just needs to get their toes in the water of, yeah. <laughs> of sharing. And the it's work. nice because we get on a call once a month and hang out. So yes. it's not like you don't know these people in the Slack group. Yeah. They're not just names, right? Like, because we actually hang out together and talk through story together and, yeah. And the craft. I love, I love that. Um, I need to gather my schedule together so I can show up to one of those, but some, well, someday if I, I'll if be I ever schedule the August one, you can know when it is. Um, but, yeah. If I get my, you know. myself together, but oh my gosh, Jeff, you have given us so much stuff. I feel like we should probably have you back on. Uh, this was fun. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on and telling us part of your story, I guess. Yeah. And I would highly recommend everyone go to check out dialoguedoctor.com and um, show up at that summit. I think you're going to learn so much more, honestly. Yeah. And I know you got Laura coming on, so I'm going to send you a yes. list of questions to ask her. Okay. super. <laughs> we won't tell her. <laughs> she might. No, don't tell her. Don't tell her. Yeah. We'll ask her about the green pen. I have that written down. <laughs> yeah. Be like, I heard from someone. That you were obsessed with green pens. And green is more soothing. Is yeah. that? <laughs> I heard from someone that you have a nonsensical amount of food rules. <laughs> oh. Please talk to me about your food book. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's not going to want to work with you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. We've been together for over 17 years. She doesn't have a choice. She's anymore. like your second wife at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go anyway. yeah. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Jeff, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Kat. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.